it first has to be passive. And that's because faith always, before it is active, is passive. Because faith is not a power that you have. Faith is just trust. And trust is not a power that you have. Trust has everything to do with whoever you're dealing with. I want to explain this to you now. I want you to imagine somebody you do not trust. This can be your family member. This can be a a workplace person. This can be someone on the TV. I don't care. I just want you to think of someone you do not trust. And I want you to think about why. You'll have good reasons. It's not wrong. It's not a sin to distrust someone who has earned the distrust. And now, to prove to you that faith is not a power you activate, I want you just to try to trust that person. Just just do it. Just decide they're trustworthy. You'll find how little faith you can make. But now I want you to think about somebody who you do trust. You don't even have to try. You just trust that person. Why? Because they're trustworthy. Which means that your trust in them is not an active thing you do. It is the passive result of something they do to you. They act with trustworthiness to you and you trust them. They act with untrustworthiness and you don't trust them. That is exactly how Christianity works. Salvation is by grace through trust, and the trust exists because God proves himself trustworthy, and the place where that is most clear for all the world to see is that he is risen. Hallelujah. So faith first is passive. Does that mean you can never rely on your faith to do something? No. And so again, your faith is active when, knowing you trust God, you take action based upon other things God has said. Yes? And so faith is a reliable substance for standing on, but again, it's not something you can make. This is so important in the fact that many Protestant or Christian churches teach about faith as if it's up to you. As if, in order to get God's blessings, you've just got to have more faith. And they send you off into the dark confines of your heart for you to try to dream up this power and pull it out of your own bottom. It doesn't work that way. What is valuable about Christianity, what makes it different from all the other religions of the world, is it doesn't come to you and say, if you will only, then God will. It does it the entire opposite way. It says, God has. God will. God does. And what that reality begins to do is change you so that you will only do things. Your faith will be something you can rely on. Something bad happens and you think, how could God love me? And you remember, I know he sent Jesus to die for me and nothing shall separate me from that love of God in Christ. And all the suffering that he gives me is but his disciplining of me as a son. So I will trust in him more. And so therefore, whatever I face can no longer, cannot possibly take me away from him. There you are. You've activated your faith, but it's only because the faith was first given to you. And that giving comes through the word of God, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he's coming again to do. And this is all very much a part of what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 4. Now, let's do a little bit of review before we dig right into the text. 
I want you to remember that the opening of Romans, chapter 1 through 17, he defines the gospel. The gospel, the good news is that the son of David is risen from the dead. That's Paul's gospel. And he declares that this is the power of salvation to everyone who believes it. Then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 25, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 20, he explains why we need salvation. He gives a very long discussion on original sin, corporate guilt, and our relationship with the law. The law being for Paul, both the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, but also then things you're supposed to do, which ultimately end end up condemning you. Now, part of Paul's point in all of this is to say that the Old Testament is not all law, that the law includes promises. And that's where it can get a little confusing for we Lutherans. We like our categories nice and tight. We're going to have to face that a little bit today again when he, he uses the word law. But the point then, again, of Romans 1 through 3 is, well, let's look at it. I want you to go into your pew Bible, find page 939, where Romans chapter 1 is. We're going to look at one verse in Romans chapter 1. That's the start of this section. And then we're going to look at one verse in Romans chapter 3, which is the end of the section. And when I read them together, hopefully the whole thing makes sense because it gives you the entire piece in just two verses. All right? So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and then I'm going to read Romans chapter 3, verse 21, right after it. I want you to flip between the two as I do it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And just so we're clear, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith, that's trust, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the message so far is the Son of David is risen from the dead, This is God's revelation of wrath against all the evil in the world, but it's also his revelation of a different kind of goodness, one that you cannot earn, but which he declares exists for you forever in Jesus. In chapter four now, he's going to prove this, not the way we Americans would prove it, which is with like an apology for the resurrection. Like we try to prove the resurrection and that's kind of fun. I don't mind that. But that's not how he's going to do it. He's going to do it like he's going to do it as a Jew. Probably because, as we've talked about, he's talking to Jewish Christians. He's trying to emphasize for them that it's not the keeping of the law as works that saves them, but it's the promises of the law, meaning Old Testament, about Jesus and what Jesus did that saves them. Um, And so to prove this to them, he's going to call two witnesses. Because Moses says, let every truth be established in the mouth of two witnesses. And the witnesses he calls are Abraham and David. He's going to quote the Old Testament, going to Abraham and David as his two witnesses, that salvation is a matter of trust that God gives you by means of promises, as opposed to by means of declaring what you must do in order to be saved. 
All right. Let's then go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 31, and we'll run right through chapter 4 altogether. But I want to lead us in from that last verse of chapter 3, where he says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? You have to hear that as the Old Testament. He's going to talk about the law as works plenty. But in this point, he's asking, do we get rid of the Old Testament because we believe in Jesus? And the answer is, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the Old Testament because the Old Testament's all about Jesus. It's prophecies, it's foreshadows, it's declarations, it's hints that he is coming. And even hints about what he's going to do, like a snake lifted up on a pole in the middle of the wilderness. So will the Son of Man be lifted up. It's all about Jesus. We don't overthrow the Old Testament. We establish it. So chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? That is, did he benefit as a man with regard to his works? And the answer is really no. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. And that not before God there means no one has something to boast about before God. And you might remember that this section, if you look, just flip back to verse 27 of chapter 3, if you look, at, look back there, he says, what becomes of our boasting? He says, it's excluded. There's no boasting. So what does Abraham have to boast about? Nothing in his flesh is the answer. Because, and now here's his proof, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that word counted means you can't boast. Because it means it wasn't really his. Right? I you know kids kind of talk this way. That doesn't count, they say, when they're playing a game. Right? And, and then the other kid will argue, yes, it did. And they'll have their reasons why. Um, the word in the Greek is, it's, it doesn't come across easy in English at all. I'm going to make you say it just for fun. It's legizomai. Say, legizomai, and it can mean all these different things. I mean, it's a lot of different meanings. They all kind of have the same edge to them, but none of them captures it. It can mean ascribe, credit, accuse, assign, brand, charge, stigmatize, pin, reckon, calculate, consider, count, view, see, and understand. And one more word, which was the way the old Lutherans like to talk about it, they would say it means impute. I-M-P-U-T-E, impute, a word like none of us know what impute means, right? Like it's, it's really out there. And reckon does work really well. It's just been ruined by some sort of, I don't know, parody of Southern culture. You know, I reckon I better go to the store. But what does a person mean when they say, I reckon I better go to the store? They consider it a truth that they need to go to the store. So the fact is that God considers it a truth that you're righteous. He has branded you in his own mind as righteous. And all of this without you actually being righteous. But by means of the righteousness of Jesus, which he promises to you, which he promised to Abraham in a foreshadowing kind of way. You have the promise that he is risen. Alleluia. And so since Christ has died... Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You have the promise of Jesus' return, of your baptism into his death and resurrection, of your eating his flesh and blood according to the words of institution. Abraham didn't have that. But he did, but he didn't. 
What Abraham had was a promise that he would have a son and then sons and that the whole world will be blessed through his sons and his son, who happens to be then eventually Jesus. And as chapter 4, verse 3 says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't just believe in God or that there's a God or that God is good. He believed what God actually said. And God said something to Abraham that's quite astonishing, really. We'll get into that because by the time he's getting this promise, he's 75 years old and his wife's just as old as he is. How on earth is he going to have a son? And I actually want to do a little looking at that here this morning. Ah, there's the piece. So uh, put a marker in your Romans chapter 4 and flip back to Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15. Actually, we're going to start at Genesis chapter 12. Go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to do a super brief overview of Abraham's life and especially focusing in on the promises. And then also looking at the sign of the promise, which is circumcision. So, First chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. This is the beginning, Abram's call. Now, the Lord, this is on page 8, by the way, if you're in the Pew Bible. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Notice, faith is first passive. God comes and says something to him and he believes it. Is the faith active when he then does what he was told to do? Absolutely. But what is it first? It's first based upon a promise. Now, when he gets to the land, it's kind of interesting. He's supposed to be in this land and God will bless him there. And then things get tough in the land. There's a famine. And what does he do? He leaves the land. That's, that's not faithful. That's not what God told him to do. He actually kind of abandons the promise for a moment. And worse than that, he gives his wife, Sarai, to someone else to sleep with. Oh, this is not the way, Abram. It's not the way. Well, that, that's what happens next. But God blesses him anyway through the midst of all of that. Brings him back to the land where he's got so much going on that he and his nephew Lot can no longer hang out together. They're Sheep herders are fighting with each other, so they split ways. And then Lot's living down by Sodom and Gomorrah, not in the city just yet. And he gets attacked and conquered by some local kings and taken off as as booty, as slave trade. So Abram goes off with a bunch of his men, and he conquers them, gets his son or gets his nephew back, gets a bunch more money out of the event, and then is met by Melchizedek. If you're following along kind of in the text, we're in chapter 14 now. He's met by Melchizedek, this king of Salem, king of righteousness, who comes out from what is to be Jerusalem and brings bread and wine to seal a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham gives him 10% of all that he has. And then chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Remember, the promise is that he's going to have sons, many sons, and whole nations. That hasn't happened at all. So Abram says, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now here's the verse Paul quotes. And he believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. All right. Now, I'm going to explain something that won't make sense till we get back to Romans 4. So you got to kind of put it in your pocket. Has he been given circumcision yet? The answer is no. Turn to chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. This is where he's going to give circumcision. Notice how much later this is, and you'll even hear how much longer it's been. When Abram was 99 years old, 24 years later from when all this starts. The promises are given 24 years earlier. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And if you look down to verse 10, you'll have to turn the page in the Pew Bible. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Why am I emphasizing that? Because Paul's about to. He's going to make the case that the promise comes first and then the obedience comes after. And that particularly the obedience of the Old Testament code law, like circumcision, is secondary to the New Testament fulfillment of that law in who Jesus is and the promises that he is now making. All right? So that's going to show up again in a moment. I've kind of I've greased the skids there a little bit. Let's go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 3 again, though, where he's first going to emphasize how this imputing, this reckoning, this counting of righteousness is a gift. It's something that cannot be earned. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? So the idea here is that if you earn something, you deserve it. And no one can keep it from you. If you go to your job and they say, we'll pay you if you do this and you do it, then you're owed it. It's just the way that it is. But that's not really what Paul's talking about at all. He's going to say the opposite is the way Christianity is. The next verse. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that is his trust in the promises, is counted as righteousness. Now, I feel like I was thinking between the services that I didn't say this hard enough. There is nothing you have to do. Not even keep laws like do not murder. Your Christianity 
is based entirely not on works. And what you'll find when you talk to your Protestant friends and neighbors and your Catholic friends and neighbors too, is they'll say, but don't you have to do something? Don't you have to at least believe? And they mean do a work that is believing. Or they'll say, don't you have to at least repent? As if I have said that repentance isn't something that will happen. But you see, what they want to do is take the cart and the horse, and they want to put the cart at the back of the horse and try to push the cart. When the reality is that God is the one who's going to do all of it. He's going to pull you forward. He's going to raise you from the dead. He's going to give you things that you can believe, even though they're unbelievable. And that will be resurrection now. So again, when he says to the one who does not work, he really means it. He doesn't mean you work later. He doesn't mean you work a little bit with God on the side. He means that you don't do any good works. You don't have to. You never have to. You don't have to. Does that mean you're not going to do any good works? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means you don't have to. And here you can see, if, you, if you'll bear with me for a moment, how insane we are as humans, as, as sinful humans. We're insane. I have to do good? Like, that's how we think about it. Well, if I'm going to do good, you better pay me for it. Like, what kind of idiots are we? Well, we are. We're broken. We're completely broken. We think that doing good needs to be rewarded. Doing good is its own reward. That's the reality. Doing good is good. Doing evil is evil. The promise of Jesus is that without you doing any good, you're saved from your evil. And now you don't have to worry about doing good to save yourself from your evil because you can't. Instead, you can just kind of do good. Just try without needing to be paid back at all. Why? Because it's, it's good. Now, if you didn't follow me there, that's okay. But I just want to make it so clear because I, I know out there, there's somebody who's going to say on some other thing I say somewhere that I am teaching that you have to like, that grace isn't enough. I, I've heard it already from others. That grace isn't enough. And that is just, it's so untrue. And on the other side, I know there are those out there in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, who when you say no works at all, they say, oh, you mean people don't have to do anything good. You're an antinomian. You don't believe in the law. And I want to make it clear that both of those sides of the equation are missing half the Bible. Grace alone means a radical gospel. It means that you do nothing and you don't have to do anything ever. And if you do more evil and you find yourself doing more evil, you are forgiven. That forgiveness will make you repent. It will make you hate the evil. You won't be glad you did the evil. You'll be frustrated with the evil. You'll want to stop. Because regeneration of the heart means insight into what is real. And so you'll see that good works are good. Just as much as you'll see they can't do a lick of good on Judgment Day. All right, I, I maybe overplayed that. Thank you for bearing with me. Verse 6 now. Second witness. He called Abraham. Now he's calling David to the witness stand. As David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So David says the same thing. Psalm 32. Verse 1 and 2, Romans 4, verse 7 and 8, quoting it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins 
that's missing the mark, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David is a man after God's own heart, primarily seen in one phenomenal moment. He has already slept with somebody else's wife and conspired to have that man murdered to cover up his sin. He is confronted by the prophet, and the prophet says to him, a guy did such and such, what should happen? And David says he should die. And the prophet says, that's you. And David doesn't say, well, I didn't mean to. He doesn't say, but what about all the other good things I've done? He says, I'm sorry. I deserve whatever you give me. And then he says, have mercy. That is why David's a good king. It's because he knows his God is merciful. And he throws himself at the mercy of God, trusting in the promises that he has received. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are covered. He lived it. He knew it firsthand. And it's here written not only for him, but for you. For you. So you can let go. Stop holding on to those sins you want to pretend aren't sins. Stop trying to prove to yourself that you really are good enough. Just be broken. And know that Jesus is sufficient. That he has you. That when we say Jesus loves you, it doesn't just mean he's a nice guy. It means he's a king who gave up his kingdom to earn another one for you. Mm, that's how good he is. All right. Verses 9 through 12 are going to tangent into this Jew-Gentile circumcision thing. Okay, so it's not the main argument here, at least so far as we, we Protestants are concerned. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? That means for the Jew? The practicer of Judaism, or is it also for the uncircumcised? That means someone who's not Jewish. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He's just repeating that main point. Is that only for Jews? Is his question. And of course, now, I mean, we know it's not, right? This isn't a big deal for us. We're not sitting here fighting about whether only Jews are saved. But that was something that was very common in the New Testament era. And it's as important as asking, how are you saved? By works or by faith? Right? That's why it, the argument matters. Verse 10 then, how was it the righteousness counted to him, Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So we just answered that question a little bit ago, right? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. You saw that. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. For as many as 24 years, maybe, probably more like 20 or 15. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Right? So God wanted it to be seen that the promise matters more than the works. So that righteousness would be counted to them, that's you and me, as well. And to make him, verse 12, that's Abraham, to make Abraham the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That is to say, if you're a Jew and you keep the Old Testament law because you love it, that's fine, but it won't save you unless you also have the faith of Abraham, which is in the promises that are come to completion in Jesus Christ. So Abraham is the father, not of the law, but of the gospel, not of works, but of faith for the Jew and for the Gentile. That's the point. 
Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, that is through works, but through the righteousness of faith, that is through believing the promise. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. That is to say, if salvation is by what you do, it doesn't matter if you believe even a little bit. You're going to be judged on what you do. And the promise, it doesn't matter either. God can promise you salvation all he wants. But if that's not how you get saved, it's only about what you do. Then salvation is about what you do. And so your faith and your promises, they're a waste of your time. You better get ready being righteous. Yeah, that's pretty rough, isn't it? And he's trying to make that point. Not only like, do you want that? No, of course you don't want that. But guess what? That's not it. And so why would you let someone teach that? Why would you let someone else believe and teach that so as to lead you to think it's about you? Yes. Now, verse 15 is one of these places where Paul's just going to say something that modern Christians always want him to like explain and prove things. He's going pretty deep, pretty fast here. He says, for the law brings wrath. That's point one. Point two, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then in verse Verse 16, he's just going to go on right past that pretty much. But the law brings wrath. If you've been in Lutheran catechesis, you've heard about how the law is a curb, the law is a mirror, the law is a guide. Yeah. And when you look into the mirror of the law, you find lex semper accusat. The law always accuses you. And so that's what he means here. That when you try to judge yourself, Based upon yourself, what you find is you're under God's wrath. It just disappoints you. It works against you. It breaks you. And that's why the law was given. Because if it hadn't been given clearly, do not covet, then you would not have realized how bad your coveting is. Right? Now, again, that's not his main point, but it is what he says there in verse Verse 12, verse, excuse me, in verse 15. Moving on, verse 16, he's getting back to his main argument again. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Again, if it's about what you do, it's not guaranteed. You don't know until judgment day. That's actually how Muslims live. That's how a lot of Roman Catholics live. That's how a few Protestants live, although they do it quietly. They suffer in silence. They really aren't sure if they're saved. They don't know. And again, if you're in Rome or if you're in the Islamic world, like that's officially the teaching. You'll find out after you die. Huh? There's no guarantees. That's because it's based on works for them. Paul says, in order that that would not be the case, God based it on a promise. So it couldn't be about you. It would have to be about him. About whether he is trustworthy, not whether you are trustworthy. And so it's about a promise that it may rest on grace. Again, grace meaning a gift. Not only to the adherents of the law, that's to the Jew who keeps the Old Testament, which is fine, but they're still saved by grace, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's the rest of us non-Jews who've believed in the same God of Abraham without being part of the Jewish covenant. As it is written to Abraham, again, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he, Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead, see the belief in the resurrection, and calls into existence things that do not exist. Ooh, there's so much there. We do have a little time for it. So Abraham's trust in God 
is about bringing life to the dead. Remember how old he is and how old Sarah is when they're promised they're going to have a son. It is impossible for them to have a son. But God is able to call into existence things that are not. They don't exist until he says they do. This goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Let there be light. There's light, right? He, he makes it with his own words. And so he can say to Sarah, you will have a son by this time next year. And she has a son. He can send a messenger with his word to Mary and say, you will have a son having never known a man and she will have a son. So he can say to you, I declare you righteous because of what Jesus did. And guess what? You're righteous. With a righteousness, not your own, but all your own at the same time. It's not in you as if it is all that you are, but it's in you through believing the promise. And the believing is the awakening that is in you. Yes, the faith isn't righteous because it's faith. The faith is righteous because it trusts the right person. And that's Jesus again. So he brings life from the dead. Again, Isaac, who then finally does get born as this one son who shouldn't have ever been born. And God says, kill him. And Abraham says, okay. And the book of Hebrews tells us it's because he believed he'd be risen from the dead. He trusted that at this point now. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of the real son who would die on the cross for us, who then did not stay dead, but conquered death. And so there Jesus says, I will go away and I will come again. Yes. And that's exactly what he does because he speaks into existence the things that are not. When he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you remember that baptize is just the Greek word for wash. I wash you in my name. Guess what? He did. It's not a symbol. It's not a picture. I mean, it is. It's those two. But it's not just that. It's what he said. I wash you. When he says, take and eat, this is my body. He has the authority to call into existence things that are not. So take and eat, this is my body. And now you are my body. And guess what? You, plural, are. This is the power of God. Yes, this is why the word of God is what Christianity is all about. Because it's the word that creates faith. Verse 18, in hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He quotes it again, so shall your offspring be. Why is it in hope against hope? Again, because what he was hoping for was impossible. It was impossible. 75, 85, 90-year-old women don't have kids. Kids, did you know that? It, it stops. It turns off. Okay, turns off and, and it just doesn't happen. So he hoped against hope. That is the model for you. What are you hoping against hope in? Guess what? People don't rise from the dead. They go in the grave and they stay there. But you are hoping against hope that you've been promised that won't be true for you forever. You see the overlap. Yeah. And how Abraham is our model. He's our example here. Verse 19, he did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And we kind of touched on this a little bit when we were looking at Genesis. You see Abraham trusting the promise more and more, the further the story goes, right? I promise you, in this land, you're going to be a blessing to the world. Yeah, but there's a famine. I'm leaving. Yeah? 
That's not acting on the faith. That's confusion. I promise you, from this woman is going to come a son who will bless the world. I'll marry her to somebody else. Yeah? And then later, I'll have intercourse with someone who's not her and have a son because she said so. Right? He continually makes these little mistakes. But as the story goes on, his faith begins to understand. So that by the time he is told, now offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice, he does it. Because he's learned to believe that what God says will come to pass, and that time is a poor measurement of God's promises. What well, hasn't happened yet? That doesn't mean anything. It's going to. Yeah? He's fully convinced, verse 21, that God was able to do what he had promised. And so that's, I mean, highlight that verse for yourself. What does that mean for you? God has promised in your baptism in Romans 6, we're going to get there in two weeks. He has promised in your baptism that you're resurrected in Jesus already. Be fully convinced of that. He promises in the words of institution that you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God. And therefore, since you have his flesh in you, John 6, he will raise you up on the last day. Be fully convinced of that. He has promised you that you have a righteousness, not your own, by which he will judge you, and that all your sins, even though they are filthy rags, will be washed away entirely. They can no longer hold you. Be fully convinced of that. He's declared to you the way the world works. The marriage is a man and a woman making kids. That lying to other people brings about distrust and problems in the community. Be fully convinced of that too. Now we don't Diminish the law, we uphold the law. But the law and the keeping of it does not save you. Be fully convinced that you are saved. Why? Because he said so. And again, if you doubt it, just remember that you're baptized. That wasn't you. That wasn't me. That was Jesus' idea. He marked you as one redeemed by himself, calling into nothing something that was not. Yes? Verse 22, that is why his faith Abraham's was counted to him as righteousness back from 24 because he believed the promise. And the promise is righteousness itself from God. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That's the point I've been making. This is all about you in Christ. Yeah. Verse 24 is for our sake also. It, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The imputation, the reckoning, the branding, the accusation, you're righteous now, has been given to you in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And I I, want to make this clear. I spoke about this last service too. I want to be super clear about this. There are people out there. If you go online, you can find people fighting about everything. Did you know that? You can find and find about everything. You can find Christians and, and Lutheran Christians who will fight about whether or not the cross or the resurrection are more important. It's such an entire waste of like everything to, to set Jesus' cross against his resurrection rather than to see them as two parts of the same whole. He rose from the death he died on the cross. He died so that he could rise. It's one Christ. That doesn't mean that there's not a difference between the two. So where did Jesus pay for your sins? Cross or resurrection? It's the cross. 
It's where his blood was shed as an atoning sacrifice. It's where he was the Passover lamb. Yes? So the cross is where your sin is paid for. And this has led a lot of Lutherans to want to lead in their sharing of the gospel to lead with the cross. Because we do believe the gospel is that you are forgiven for Christ's sake. I mean, that's true. It's part of the good news. And so I think we have a history as American Lutherans of telling our friends and neighbors that Jesus forgives their sin. And we can't figure out why that doesn't mean anything to them. But I'll tell you, it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't know what sin is. They don't believe they're sinners. So all it does is make us seem a little weird. And just as bad as when you lead with Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you is, is like comparing Jesus to Barney the dinosaur. Barney the dinosaur, he's probably off TV now at this point. It's new stuff, but that was what I had when I was a kid. Barney the dinosaur, yeah, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. That's not, that's not the thing to lead with, okay? Now, does Jesus love you? Say yes. Yes, Jesus loves you. Uh, did Jesus die on the cross to pay for all of your sins? Yes. But what is the thing to tell someone who's never heard anything about Jesus before that will make sense even though it will confuse them immediately? The answer is he is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. What do you Christians believe? We believe that the son of David is risen from the dead. It's what we believe. It changes everything. And even someone who has no clue who the son of David is going to be like, wait, you think someone rose from the dead? You guys are weird. Huh? But, but that's okay. Yeah, you've got their hearing. You've got their attention. You've got the first step of the gospel. And again, that's what he says here, I think, when he says he counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And he then says in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, he died for your sins. And then it says he was raised for our justification. Don't have that word be justification. You, you have my permission to, to scratch it out with a pencil. In, in your Bible and write vindication there. And I say that because if you look in the Greek, it's a different word than all the other places we use the word justification. It's a different word. All the other places we use justification, it's about you being declared innocent, right? It's about the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not what this word's about. This word is vindication. It's not about being declared innocent. It's about feeling good about the fact that you are innocent. And so again, what is the resurrection? It's the proof, it's the vindication, it's the sign that the sacrifice was accepted. Jesus died as the wrath of God revealed before all mankind, and if he'd stayed dead, who would believe it? So he rises from the dead as the vindication, the proof that it has happened. Which is again why saying that to other people is at the heart and center of converting them to Christianity. It is the sign of Jonah given for us to believe, all the, way, all the nations to understand that one sign is given, three days in the grave, and then he will come out again on the other side. Yeah. So again, he was delivered up for our trespasses, crucified for our sins. He was raised for our vindication. The resurrection is the sign for all history to know that he has done it. That you're saved. That you can be fully convinced in that promise. That the washing of regeneration, which again we'll look at to in chapter 6 in just two weeks, that the washing of regeneration is better than any other promise you will receive in this life. I can say you can take it to the bank, but frankly, the banks have too much inflation. I mean it. Those promises aren't as good as the promise that you are in Jesus Christ now. 
and that nothing can take you from his side. We'll continue that again in the coming weeks. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.